Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Curious People, I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and welcome to Getting Curious. I have been curious about our healthcare system. You want to talk about layers? There are endless layers to the healthcare system, uh, but it got in a... It got in a whole new frame for me late last year. I think the experience of navigating the healthcare system in December really brought up for me the inequality in our healthcare system that so often in the news we read about the inequity that Black people face, brown people face, uh, that women face, that marginalized communities face, queer people's face. Why is healthcare so unfair? How did it get this way? How do doctors experience the unfairness in their system? I mean... They all got experiences that they bring into the healthcare system with them. So what do they think about achieving a more equitable healthcare system? It's also Black History Month, so it seems like a good time for us to talk about um, the healthcare system, the inequalities of the healthcare system, the ways that they show up. I'm curious about all of the myriad of ways in which this happens, um, and also the history of why that happens. So to talk about that, we are bringing in Dr. Uche Blackstock. Dr. Blackstock is a physician and founder of Advancing Health Equity, which partners with healthcare organizations to dismantle racism and close the gap in racial health inequities. She is a former associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at NYU School of Medicine major. Her writing has been featured in Scientific American, The Washington Post, The New York Magazine. Her book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, just came out in January 2024 and is a new York Times bestseller. Is healthcare fair? Let's find out now. And stick around to the end of the episode where we'll reflect on what we learned and if we answered the question and how we answered the question and what I'm curious about now. Okay, let's get going. Dr. Blackstock, Dr. Uche Blackstock, welcome to Getting Curious. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited to be here. As we get started, can you tell us about like, 
what is your, like, because you were a physician at a hospital in Brooklyn when COVID hit in 2020, which that's, we're almost giving you four-year anniversary vibes. I can't believe that. But what, like, what is a day-to-day life look like for like an emergency room physician or or for a physician like you? You know, like pre-COVID, the ER is one of the wildest places. It's like, it's, but it's organized chaos, right? You see everything from someone with like a runny nose and a cough to someone coming in with a cardiac arrest, like their heart has stopped. So you see a wide breadth of cases. It's always super exciting. It's always very busy. Um, But COVID definitely just put things up a huge notch um, to the point where, you know, I was used to seeing, you know, anything, but we got so busy, you know, there were shifts where I would see between like 80 and hundred patients on a shift. Yes. Um, I was working a lot of time in, in urgent care. Um, and so we would have patients walk in with oxygen levels of like 60%. Um, it was the first time to be honest with you that I was actually scared to go to work because I didn't know what was what was coming in. We didn't really understand COVID yet. We didn't have treatments for it. I was scared that I was going to bring it home to my kids and you know my family. Um, so that was a really a really tough time. Do all hospitals? Because um, because so like because oh my god, my brain it's so many questions at once. Because like if you're a doctor at the emergency room, like what kind of doctor is that? Is that just like yeah, a... Yeah, okay. So I am... So yeah, so we're actually... So emergency medicine is a specialty. We are trained in emergency medicine. Um, it's a spe- it's actually one of the youngest specialties within medicine. Um, but our job is to really like stabilize very critically ill patients. Like we put breathing tubes down. You know, we know how to do CPR. We know how to take care of anything from, like I said, like a cold to a, a broken foot to um, someone's like heart car accident, trauma, 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 Bu- like yes, bullet we know, shots. Exactly. We know, we know how to stabilize all those people. We, we, we make sure they're good and stable. And then we'll request like a consultation from like, you know, the trauma surgeon or the cardiologist, the heart doctor or the kidney doctor. So we really are, we call it a jack of all trades, master of none. (laughs) That's what people call emergency medicine physicians. So then like across the country, does like every hospital or every state have like, is it all the same rules for like how long you're allowed to be like working? Or is it like New York, you can do eight hours in the emergency room, but like in North Dakota, you can, they're like work for the rest of your life. No breaks. We don't care. Or is it like standard or is it not standard? Yeah, no, it's, it's not really standard. The only place it's standard is among like residents when you're in your training, like you, you can't work more than a certain number of hours consecutively because you're still learning you, you, you don't have a, a, a license usually you're being supervised by someone else but for other doctors I know a few doctors that will work like seven days straight and then get seven days off oh okay yeah let's really I've been wanting to know this for a minute and I, I'm just gonna confess I do that thing where I'm like like when people like when old clients of mine would be like oh my kid's applying to medical school and like they really want to do their residency and be like I know what residency is I got two surgeon cousins like I'm very familiar with residency uh no i'm not 
So what is that again? So med school? Yeah, I know. I should ex- I, I, med school, I should explain to your listeners. Yeah, so you do four years of medical school. Then after, so at the end of medical school, you decide like, what specialty do you want to go into? Is it, is it surgery? Is it internal medicine, geriatrics, pediatric, emergency medicine? And you apply to residency. And it could be anywhere from three years to seven years. But that's where you are um, really learning how how to be a doctor. In medical school, you really don't do that. In medical school, you're kind of in class, discussions, but it's in residency that you actually get to take care of patients on your own with someone else kind of supervising you. And then after you do that for three to seven years, depending on what it is, because I bet if, I bet if it's like you're, if you're like a brain surgeon, like I bet that's yes. like seven years. Like that yes. one's like way long. Exactly. So then you just, and then when you graduate, like your little cohort of residents, like y'all are just like, oh my God, we did like our whatever years, like we're done. And then is there like a little, like, is there a little like graduation ceremony? Yeah, there's a little graduation. And then, yeah, there's a little graduation. And then people actually go wherever, like across the country to find like their first full-time job. So, you know, some people may stay where they did residency. Some people may actually travel to other places. Prior to COVID, because you had said at the beginning, like, during COVID, you were seeing how many to how many patients a day, like on like average? Eight, like 80 to 100. And what was average before COVID? Probably a, a third of that. So like 20 in a day. or Yeah. Okay. So yeah. then um, what, and is it still that intense or is no, it? No, no. I mean, I'm so, fortunately, it's not that intense, but, you know, I was working in central Brooklyn. We were the epicenter. So like, you know, we saw like by mid-March, we were getting hit really, really hard. And so I actually, I started writing about what I was seeing because um, I, I, you know, even though I'm a doctor, I actually, I like to write. <laughs> um, and so I started writing about the observations that I was making and I was working in a very like racially and socioeconomically diverse area. But I noticed like even after a week that most of my patients looked like me. So if you, for your listeners don't know, I have brown skin. <laughs> I'm, I'm a black woman. And so I started writing about like, you know, I think this pandemic is going to disproportionately impact Black communities and communities of color because of like the problems we already have with the healthcare system. hundred fucking percent, which leads me to like, I, I think it was, it was during monkeypox. I got to interview Dr. Stephen Thrasher, who I'm obsessed oh, with. Oh, that's. My friend. I yes. love him. Um, and He's so, amazing. and his book, The Viral Underclass, yes. really blew my fucking mind. And it's also giving me a little bit like Celeste Watkins Hayes vibes. Like I interviewed her about um, like the HIV social safety net. Mm-hmm. And she compared it to saying that like, when people are like, oh, we're all on the same boat. She's like, uh, yeah, like if you're in a fucking yacht and I'm on like the Rose and Jack fucking uh, bed frame trying to balance on a fucking, then, <laughs> then it's the same boat, but very different boats. Like there's a lot very. of... Equality there. Um, so, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. And, and I think, you know, Stephen said it's like back with or with COVID, it was like if you're someone who's living like a multifamily home, like multi generational home, like if you don't have the access to the resources of like grandma and grandpa have their own house and the kids have, like, then you're going to be running into, especially with like a respiratory illness, you're going to be more uh, vulnerable to this. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what I saw in terms of my patients. I mean, like I saw mostly essential workers and service workers. So people who had jobs where they had to interface and interact with the public where they had no choice. And 
And for a lot of the service workers, we know like they're more low income workers, so they're less likely to have paid sick leave. Um, they're less likely to have employer sponsored health insurance. And so, you know, I saw a lot of like delivery, you know, delivery people, um, you know, come mm. in with symptoms because they were not able to, re- to work home remotely. So those are like the issues that like Stephen talks about, like this, you know, group of people that are just more likely because of their social circumstances to be exposed to the virus. What was the risk to densely populated urban places in 2020? Like, can you set the stage for like how fucking serious that was? And like, if you saw, like, cause I mean, there were like young doctors that were dying. There was like, it was, and it wasn't. It was was scary and it's almost uh, surreal. I mean, I know that even before I went to work, I literally would hear ambulance sirens multiple times an hour multiple times an hour. Um, And when I would get to work, there would be a line of patients waiting to be seen. And I spent a lot of time in urgent care, which is where less seriously ill people come. But because the ERs were so overcrowded, we get a lot of sick people coming to us. And I remember, and I write about this in my book, I write about how I had several patients, including an older Black man who came to the ER, short of breath, fever, and I said, you need to go to the ER. Like, I'm, I'm calling an ambulance for you to take you from here to the ER. And he was like, I don't want to go. They're not going to treat me well. Plus, the ERs are packed. And they were packed because we, you know, they were packed door to door. Like, it, it was just something we had never seen before. So, like, how, so can you tell us, like, how there was and is a lot of mistrust around COVID and just like mistrust and misinformation for the Black community? Like, how has that? Yeah. happened. Yeah. It, and it's interesting. It's like one of the reasons why I actually like started using my platform more um, during the pandemic to make sure I was sharing accurate and responsible health information, because what happens when there's already like this broken bond of trust between certain groups in the healthcare institution, people are not going to seek care when they need it. And they're going to go to other sources of care. So, or not even of care, other sources of information. So we know definitely social media, people will actually read things on social media, think it's true (laughs) and, you know, follow that information or follow that guidance. Um, I had a number of patients who would tell me, but my barber or my hairstylist told me, X, Y, if I drink this tea, you know, I won't get COVID. So I'm like, oh, wow, we're actually listening to non-healthcare professionals about this new virus that I know that we're getting more and more information. I know we don't know everything about it, but at least maybe you want to listen to people who actually have a background in that area. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I just saw on TikTok that uh, in King Louis' day, the barbers were also surgeons. They okay. called them barber surgeons. Um, but y'all, I feel like in this century, you got to ask the doctors. Don't ask your hairdresser about your COVID or your butthole or, I mean, I guess sexually, yes, but not health-wise. Right. I know. And so, but but we just saw how social media like played such a big, big role in spreading misinformation. And there, and there were always like a few accounts that did it that really had pretty large platforms that were able to disseminate this information. And it's really unfortunate because people, if they follow that guidance, are not able to protect themselves as much. But again, that's based on this 
legacy or history of distrust, right? So the problem is, it's like when something happens, like the pandemic, all of a sudden, how can you tell people, oh, no, 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 trust me, trust me. I'm going to, you know, I'm going, I'm going, I'm telling you the correct information. So we have to think about these things before a pandemic happens. We have to think about engendering trust with all these different communities before, you know, before something devastating happens, not during. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wujahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support and Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Can you give us other examples of like ways that you've seen not to like, but just you're like, I'm a fucking doctor. These are the myriad of ways that I see health inequality show up on a day-to-day basis. You know, we're the only high income country that doesn't have universal health care, but we have like the very worst health outcomes. And it's not just among black people and people of color. It's among everybody. Like we are not doing well as a country health wise. And you know, people, we need to just look at that disparity. Like we're spending billions, but then people are still dying. So for example, like life expectancy, when COVID hit, life expectancy in all high income countries dropped. But since then, life expectancy actually has picked back up in all of those countries, except guess where? Here. It actually continues to go down for all racial demographic groups, much worse for people of color. And that's because, like, you know, I don't know, I, I don't think universal health care is going to be the one solution, but I think it's going to be part of the solution. We have 30 million uninsured people, and then the people who are insured, many of them are underinsured, meaning they can't pay their premiums, you know, they can't, we know, we know so many people, actually, who are diabetic, they have to ra- ration their insulin, mm. um, 
you know? Um, so they make decisions about, you know, should I buy this medication or should I buy my groceries? Like, and those are, that's for people who are insured. So that should never be the case. But then when we, when we look specifically at Black people, like the, the stat I always use is that even myself with, you know, I went to Harvard for undergrad and medical school. Even with those degrees, I still, as a Black woman, am five times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than my white peers who are college educated. And so people will say, well, what's that about? Because you have, you have good insurance. You live a pretty good life, right? But what that's about is a few things. One, a lot of times we're not listened to, and that doesn't matter about your socioeconomic status. We saw what happened to Serena Williams, and she had her blood clot. Yes. Right? He previously told her medical team she was having similar symptoms. No one listened to her. The blood clot traveled to her lungs. She almost died. So if that happens to Serena Williams, that can happen to any average Black woman. But the other thing that we don't talk enough about is actually how racism causes a wear and tear on Black bodies. It's something mm. called we- it's something called weathering. Um, the public health researcher Arlene Geronimus, she termed that expression weathering. So anything, living in any chronically stressed condition, whether it's living under poverty, whether it's living with racism, causes this wear and tear on the body that prematurely ages it, that makes it susceptible to developing chronic diseases or delivering a baby early or having complications when you're delivering a baby, right? And so there's that's more invisible. Like we don't see that. It's more covert. And so I think people, because it's more covert, people are probably like, no, I don't believe that. But there's a lot of really great data out there that shows this weathering process, you know, shortens the lives, the lives that everyone deserves to lead full, beautiful lives. But it shortens the lives of, of Black people in this country. Well, it just makes you think about like that, like that thing on like the football field where it's like explaining privilege. And then it's like to go to the 10 yard, like, so it's like, yeah. I'm a white queer person. But then when you put like, an a um black queer person, Latino queer person, like it like, or if they're trans and queer, it like it's just more things that like get yes. layered on it that makes it harder for someone to not judge you, listen to what you're saying, and then like get the care that you need. Right. Which is why I always talk about like what's the responsibility of like medical schools and health profession schools, like really to make sure they're educating our future physicians and health professionals to care for a diverse patient population, like diverse racially wise, gender, sexual orientation, like we need to have, like any patient needs to walk in with us and feel seen, heard and appreciated. Like it's, you know, it's so important, but, you know, medicine is one of the most traditional and very conservative uh, disciplines. It takes a lot to create change and we see that it's needed now more than ever. So what have you noticed about equity in our healthcare system since the beginning of COVID? Like it's because you said earlier, like other countries are getting better. We're getting worse. Is I know. Is there some silver linings? Is there or is it just (laughs) really bad? Well, well, I mean, there were some really wonderful things that happened during the pandemic, like the CARES Act, where basically people could get tested for COVID and not have to pay. People could get COVID treatments and not have to pay. We know the funding for that ran out and Congress never renewed it. Right. You know, there there were so those kind of things like that's like a piece of universal care, right? Universal health care. Like we saw and we saw that in states that had Medicaid expansions, people actually did better when it came to COVID because they had they had health insurance. <laughs> they could go to the hospital. Crazy you know? how that yeah, works. No, Yes, exactly. So there 
there are all these things that we know, these policies that we know, I always call them health and all policies. Like we know that having paid family and sick leave makes people healthier because then they don't come to work sick, one. And then two, they stay home with their, whoever, a family member is sick to help them get better. Like these are things that just like are really beautiful, thoughtful policies to have. But in our country, in the US, there is so much political will against having it. It's almost like, you know, people think about these called entitlement programs. They think people are not going to work, want to work as hard, you know, or people are getting free, free things. And it's like, no, no, no. You want to help. We want healthy, healthy, healthy people. <laughs> but even that free thing, it reminds me of like, tell me if this is true or not. But it's like, I, I remember in like, um, some speeding class that I had to take because I got a speeding ticket in like Phoenix and like the early aughts and I had to like go take this like speeding class and that they were saying like oh if you think that you're like well I want to drive myself to the bar because I don't want to pay for a cab so you're saving the $20 but then if you get a DUI you're paying 10000 so you actually really just spent way more money trying to save it so when I think mm -hmm. about with our health insurance and just our health care if someone is underinsured or not insured cannot pay so let's say someone got into a car accident, they go to the hospital, they get like a leg surgery, they get like stabilized in their insides, like it's like some open stomach thing. It's like a really intense surgery. I've seen surgery bills for like family members of mine that have had surgery or cancer treatment. It's like a million dollars, $600,000, these insane prices. So when someone gets that amount of surgery and they can't pay because they don't have insurance, doesn't what happens with that? Isn't that like why everyone's insurance is so fucking high? Because yeah, like that the increases premiums. It, yeah. So it's just like it leads to everything being more expensive. But also the other thing is if we had universal health care, part of that is having uh, an emphasis on disease prevention. So, you know, we end up in this country seeing people with like full on diabetes, full on high blood pressure, heart disease. We don't want people to get to that point. Like we need to invest more in public health prevention so that people just are healthier. So they don't develop these diseases, which actually end up, yeah, end up spending more money treating them. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon. But I should stop paying for me time with whatever credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offer 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Sign me up. Room upgrades? Yes, please. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? 
is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's set the scene. In America today, infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates are highest among Black women, and Black men have the shortest life expectancy of any demographic group. The Hippocratic Oath, which all doctors take before they begin practicing, is all about doing no harm. So... How did we get here? I know. Right. How did we get here in 2024, where despite advances in research, innovation, technology over the last 20, 30 years, especially, we actually are seeing even worse numbers, like worse. And I think that speaks to how deeply embedded systemic racism is in our healthcare system and in our other social institutions in this country. Like, I think... People like we say, oh, people like to say, oh, no, it's socioeconomic status. No, because we know socioeconomic status is not protective, right? Like, did I already say that I, you know, even, you know, I'm still more likely than my white peers, right? Yes. So to, to die of pregnancy related complications. So we need to think about what happens when Black patients, again, interface with the healthcare system, right? Are they being listened to? So we know one, one example is pain. There's this issue of pain inequity. Um, and we actually saw it with the beginning of the opioid epidemic when Black patients were less likely to be given prescriptions for pain medications, but white patients were more likely. And then they actually, unfortunately, developed addiction to it, right? So people say, oh, that was protective for Black people. I'm like, no, it wasn't, because when your pain is not treated... When your pain is not treated, that impairs your quality of life. When your pain is not treated, you're missing an underlying reason for that pain. So the doctor is not doing, you know, a deeper dive into why you're having that pain. You it actually impacts your emotional well-being. You become depressed and anxious. So, you know, but we we, we see that repetitively, even in pediatric patients that, you know, black and Hispanic pediatric patients with appendicitis are given less pain medication than than white kids. It's like Ugh, how can that be? Do we see other ways that the Hippocratic Oath promise is not being kept for the Black community specifically? You know, that, that's such a that's such a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think most of it is in how people are not listened to when they seek care. Um, you know, I talked about the the wear and the tear, but I also think that doctors need to understand. This is for any patient. Like when you're talking to a patient and they're in your exam room, like it's not just you and them. It's your patient's family. It's their employer. It's where they live. If you're not thinking about like all the other factors that make people healthy, um, then it's not like you have to have a solution to all of that. But if you if you don't know that your patient is housing insecure, if you don't know that your patient is um, not having access to healthy foods in their neighborhood because there's no supermarket because it's a food desert. Right. Um, if, you, if, if you are not like thinking about all those other other factors, what we call the social determinants of health and only thinking about prescribing a medication or telling someone you should um, eat better, that's not holistic care that we should be providing people like we need to make sure we understand everything that's going on with our patients, because that's really how we can be the best 
physicians to them. And I think also when it comes to Black patients, we really don't understand the history as much. So for example, like, you know, I talk in the book about redlining. Redlining, you know, was a policy in the 1930s that graded neighborhoods just solely based on who lived in those neighborhoods. If racial and ethnic minorities lived in the neighborhood, it's a D. If it was mostly white and affluent, it was an A. And what those grades reflected was your ability to get a federally backed mortgage or mortgage insurance. Well, fast forward from the 1930s to 2024, when you look at formerly redlined neighborhoods, those are neighborhoods that have the very worst health outcomes. You can have differences in life expectancies of like 30 years between two neighborhoods that are next to each other. One was redlined and one wasn't. And that's because when you deprive communities of resources or opportunities for generational wealth, supermarkets, you know, we know that schools are funded through tax bases from property taxes. All of that impacts health. So we need physicians, health professionals to think more holistically about what makes their patients healthy. And I also think it's an obligation for us to be advocates for our patients. Like we can't just think about what's happening in the exam room. If there are policies that are going to improve the lives of our patients, we need to be out there, whether it's protesting, speaking in front of Congress, sharing our knowledge to improve their quality of life. So can you talk a little bit more about the history of uh, why Black Americans might distrust the medical system? Yeah, I mean, it's a, ser- a series of things. I know most people have heard. So I don't. So I typically don't like to call it the Tuskegee experiment. I like to use like the formal name. It's a U.S. Public Health Service study of syphilis in the untreated Black male because it was the U.S. Public Health Service, which is now known as the CDC. They're the ones who orchestrated it. I know. And basically, it was a study on these you know, men in rural Alabama, these Black men, low-wage workers who were told that they had bad blood. So they were diagnosed with syphilis. Just told, They weren't told they had syphilis. They were told they had bad blood. And they were part of this study to see what happens to people when you don't treat them? Oh my you God! Don't treat their syphilis. So the syphilis was allowed to advance. Neurosyphilis. Heart it affects the heart too. Yeah, and and they gave it to their partners. Their, their partners and the baby and their babies were born with congenital syphilis. And so even in 1947, it started. It started in 1932. The study, and even in 1947, I believe when penicillin, the treatment was discovered, they were not given the treatment. And the study went on until 1972, actually, when a Black epidemiologist at the CDC found out about it and was like, I need to tell the AP, Associated Press, about this. AP broke the story and they stopped They stopped the study right away. In 1972. Yeah, 40 years. So we were purposely not treating Black men in Alabama. Right. With their fucking syphilis that caused like infant yeah. deaths, permanent disfiguration, like to their community. Okay, so yeah. what was really screaming for me as you said that is because I've done a lot of HIV advocacy work, a lot of times I feel like I have people who will say, like, oh, but you know, like, you know, it's like, but the black men and the Hispanic men, like, we really, you know, they're just not listening. And so that's real. And it's like, that just makes a lot more sense why... Yeah, why well, you wouldn't trust. like, and, and then also you wouldn't trust like the medicine that you're getting. Is this a medicine that's going to work or is it not going to work? You know, And, and the so, government's never apologized for that or like really made... No, they whole, did. They I think did? Bill Clinton, Clinton did. Clinton issued an apology to some of the, um, 
the living uh, participants of the study. Like, I think maybe the 19, 1990s, maybe? Yeah. After World War II, President Truman was serious about creating a national health insurance pro- uh, program system. What was the historical connection between the civil rights movement and legislation for healthcare for all? Uh, did racism get involved in dissolving support for that legislation? Like, what was that about? Yeah, so, so part of it was, so so Truman actually, yeah, he did propose universal health care. But it was the American Medical Association, which is the oldest and largest organization of physicians. And actually, can I tell you, they had their own history with bias and racism. They didn't allow black doctors in for a very, very long time, like not, not until like the, like the 1900s. But anyway, they lobbied against it because they were concerned that black people, even black people would get health care because up until that point, health care was only employer sponsored and only certain people had the type of jobs that were they would provide health insurance. So the American Medical Association, which is a, you know, physician organization, but they were also worried about losing profits as well. So there's that financial piece as well. So they discuss, they lobby, they spent, and they still spend millions of dollars lobbying against universal health care. So that's what they did. But also of note, in 1964, we know the Civil Rights Act was passed. The year after that, Medicare went into effect in order for hospitals to get Medicare funding, so that's funding um, basically for the elderly, elderly can get care without having to pay. Um, in order to get federal funding, hospitals had to desegregate. So that Medicare, so Civil Rights Act 1964, then Medicare legislation essentially forced hospitals to desegregate and to provide care for all patients. There were still a lot of hospitals that tried to get around that. But if you wanted to get federal funding for your Medicare patients, you had to desegregate it. So that's like the impact of the Civil Rights Act. So that's on, good. Or that yeah. was good. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was good. But it's like, why do we have to? Why, and why and, 19, and 1965, that? though, like that, that wasn't like, I think I, it's another thing that people, if there's still like, I, I guess, like, because I was raised, I reckon with this a lot in my second book, Love That Story, like really realizing like how I was raised, who raised me, like my maternal grandmother, like was from Raleigh, North Carolina. Like there was a lot of like, in like yeah. racism that was just like past that I didn't even understand yeah, or like course. name it as of such. Um, but that is one thing that I just, you know, when I would try to explain to her or like my father or anyone who I, you know, have these conversations with is like, it really blows my mind. Like the thing that really like made me go like, like, how can you even argue with this? Black women didn't gain the right to vote in the United States until 1965, which is literally their families, their family interests, like what they thought should happen. That's like 200 years of not getting to like vote your fucking interests. Like yeah. reparations now, I'm flipping this fucking table over. Like these kinds. I know. Um, <laughs> well, let's flip it together. <laughs> let's do it. Um. So, okay, so... You, uh, so in the book, in, in your book, did you go more into like that whole like civil rights movement and like that legislation? Like, do you talk about that history in there? Yeah, I talk about it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit more in the book. You guys Definitely. get the fucking book. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, how- by the way, I didn't mention it's a, New, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a New, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's been on the New York Times list the last two weeks. That is huge. Okay, so um, <laughs> and did you do the audiobook too? I did. I narrated it myself. It was so much fun. I loved it. I fell in love with my book all over again. Her new book is available now. It's Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. It just came out um, in January. Rapid fire, last segment. How, how long did it take you to write the book? It took me a year and a half. 
oh my God, year and a half. Um, and you and everything that you've shared with us, like you break this. That was just like a little tiddly teaser, honey. That was just like a little, yeah, just that was a, little... a little teaser. Yeah, but but I wanted to say, people, like the book is about my like my own personal story as a second generation black woman physician. My mother, my twin sister, and I are the first black mother daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School. And so I use our experiences to talk about these larger, larger systemic issues, but also I end the book with a call to action, what people can do to make a difference. Which, do we need to read that for that? Or is there anyone who you're like, you should just do this and read the book? Yeah, okay. So I would just tell people to, you know, the most most important is to look at what, what's happening in your communities or other, you know, other communities around you, Black communities. There, there are a lot of community-led efforts, birthing centers, um, groups dealing with climate crisis, which we know is related to systemic racism. So I want people to look at hyper-locally, locally, so they don't get overwhelmed. Donate to Black-led organizations. Volunteer with Black-led organizations. All those organizations at a neighborhood level impact health. So you can make a difference by knowing what's happening in your area or other areas close by. If you're a young med student or you have a young med student in your life, uh, what is something you'd recommend that they do? Rapid fire. Oh my goodness. I, I would recommend that they get together and question everything that's in their curriculum. Look through their curriculum, say, is it dealing with the history of medical racism? If it's not, you demand that your administration puts that in the curriculum. Okay, and also, you guys, it's rapid fire because Uche has a flight to catch, not because I could, like, keep her for 17 more hours, but she's, like, got fucking shit she's saving the goddamn world. Uh, what even is single-payer universal healthcare, and could and what could that look like in America if you can do that in, like, three sentences? Yes, it's single-payer universal healthcare is when, like, one public entity or, or, or agency manages all of the, the, the funding and payments for healthcare, And so it doesn't have to necessarily be a public one. It can be public, but also I want people to understand single payer, you can still have a choice about what doctors you see, um, you know, what specialists you see. It doesn't mean that someone's going to determine all of that for you, but we know that in, it could potentially save a lot of money and a lot of lives. And if someone has just like fallen head over heels, but crazy in love with you and your work as I have over the last hour, uh, where are you the most active on social? Where can we follow you if we want to just like see your work? Or did I give you a lecture about being on TikTok and making lots of videos? No, no. So, so I, I, I do have a TikTok account, but I'm mostly on Instagram, Uche Blackstock MD, and I'm on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, Uche underscore Blackstock. Okay, well, I'm really on Instagram a lot. So if you could please just like show your face, tell us about things, tell us about your work. Like we would yes. just love to see it. So Uche, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. I love you so much. I, I'm, I feel like I got such bad ADHD in the middle of that. I, I want to have you back. I just... Okay. We did we do good? Was I, I just love talking yeah. to you and I want to have you back. Yes, You're just incredible. I feel like we just like tap, we just like scratch the surface. Like I want to go so much deeper. Uche, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. <laughs> yes. Catch your flight. I love you so much. Thank you for coming. Okay, thank you so much for coming. And I want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is, so, this is a lot of fun. How obsessed are we with Dr. Uche Blackstock? In fact, when a healthcare system is... Uh, fully and absolutely and totally based on capitalism, it is going to leave your uh, public, your people, the the health of your people open to so much, uh, going to make you very susceptible. Um, and, you know, it's like that short red-haired lady said in The Weakest Link, you are the weakest link. Um, I feel like our healthcare is that. It is one of our weakest links. The way that our healthcare shows up for our people, the way that we take care of, of people really is one of our biggest, weakest American links. And it's going to make the universe say goodbye uh, to us because 
we are not doing great. Um, I think the other really important thing that we learned here is that when people don't trust their sources, they look for information elsewhere, uh, you know, from their friends, their hairdressers, you know, and that, that part hit home close. Um, they look for really important information elsewhere where maybe those people don't have the fullness of the information that they need. So the link between mistrust and then accessing and gaining misinformation is very real. Um, so the other thing there is that it's really when when Dr. Blackstock said to us, we need to work on engendering trust. Uh, wow. I mean, we we really have engendering gender down pat in this society, but we do not have engendering trust down very, very well. Uh, so that's and we have to do that between pandemics, not only when it's an emergency. So I thought that was uh, a really interesting, important part to nail there. Um, I think, you know, as so many episodes that we've learned on getting curious and not to be like, you know, we've learned this so much, but it's, it just is so true. I mean, racism leeches itself into every facet of our society. Our healthcare system is no different. There's several ways um, that Dr. Blackstock shared that with us. And I'm, I know in there, in her book, she goes, so much more into so many of them, but the U.S. Public Health Service that created the syphilis experiment, also known as the Tuskegee experiment, that didn't end until the 1970s. And it was started in the 1930s. And that just, you know, if you are a white person who has ever thought, or if you're anybody who's ever thought, um, especially white person, you know, why don't they just take the vaccine or, you know, why don't they just take prep, whatever it is, there is real generational trauma there. And I don't think there, you know, if we were going to compare that to Twitter, for instance, I remember someone told me once you have to tweet about something like four times before anyone really knows how important it is. It's like, you know, one apology by one president, Bill Clinton in the nineties, isn't enough to fix all that. And Really, it's like every administration needs to say that so many times to start to earn that trust back. And even through COVID, we had so many Republicans who were undermining, we just had so many politicians who were undermining that trust and continue to undermine that trust at every turn, which I think really points to the crisis of information that we are in when we have a whole party who is married to sowing chaos and division in terms of like making its constituents not believe in what um, scientists say, we're really in a world of hurt. And I think part of why a lot of those politicians are so able to um, continue to sow that distrust and, and, and cherry pick that information to create misinformation in terms of like why people shouldn't trust the government it's because the government hasn't done a really great job at um, rectifying its mistakes and correcting its mistakes. Here's some other, the most interesting things we took away from this conversation. We're the only high-income country without universal health care. We are the only one. And our health outcomes are bad for everyone. It's bad for everyone. Also, why is healthcare so expensive and what happens when someone can't pay their bills, when someone is uninsured or underinsured and ultimately is not able to pay their bills? 
What happens to that? And is that part of why healthcare is so unaffordable in the United States? Like, why is the economy of our healthcare so fucked up? And is it possible to fix it? That's what I want to know. Um, so, wow. Getting curious. Y'all, I love you. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. And honey, there's more where that came from. You can follow us on Instagram at CuriousWithJVN. We are doing the most over there and it is so much fun. You can catch us here every Wednesday and also make sure to tune in every Monday for Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough? Subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JVN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Chris McClure, Julia Melfi, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall. 